There was a little girl who had been taught at church uh, a particular Sunday about Jesus' second coming and uh, how Jesus was going to come back to judge the world. And uh, so after church, this little girl started to quiz her mother about the second coming of Christ and said, Hey, Mommy, do you believe Jesus will come back? And she said, Well, yes, honey, of course I believe Jesus will come back. Mommy, do you believe Jesus will come back today? Well, I sure hope so. Yes, I, I believe he could come back today. And so the little girl said, Mommy, do you believe he could come back like in, in a few minutes? And the mom said, yeah, he, of course he could come back in a few minutes. And so the little girl looked up at mom and said, Mom, could you comb my hair, please? She wanted to get ready. She wanted to prepare. Friends, it's not just a joke. It's reality for some people. Having your hair combed when Jesus comes back to judge is about the extent of it when it comes to many people's preparation for the judgment of God. Isn't that where many really are, functionally, when it comes to their preparation for Jesus' return? Oh, but Jesus, I was at church faithfully, sitting in that same spot every week for years. Oh, but Jesus, look at my 401k. Check out my awesome kitchen. What about my cool truck? Combing the hair kind of activities, friends. In Matthew 15, 8, quoting Isaiah 29 and Ezekiel 33, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Ezekiel 33 says, Their heart is set on their gain. Oh no, Jesus. My heart is not set on my own gain. I'm all about your glory, Lord. I mean, you can be just sitting in that pew just a, a few minutes ago, raising your hands and singing, it's all about you, Jesus. And yet at the same time, your preparation for the return of Christ is about the extent of combing your hair back to be ready. You can be doing the things that look right on the outside and yet spiritually, internally, be miles away from a relationship with God in reality. And you know who's going to know that? Not us. The one who returns. The one who has the eyes like a flame of fire and walks through the churches and through our lives and sees and knows like the omniscient, omnipresent God He is. Here's how you can know where you are. Here's how you can know where you are. A little spiritual uh, thermometer test for you. Ask yourself this question. What offends me? What offends you? Do you get offended when someone wrongs you? Do you get offended when someone does something that you don't like, that Something goes the way you didn't expect it to. How about when somebody gets in line in front of you? <laughs> How about when your name is dragged through the mud? How about when you're called out and someone accuses you of doing something wrong or being wrong? How about terrorist bombings? Do they offend you? How about higher taxes? Less political control? 
What about not being in charge, not calling the shots, not being part of the process? Do those kinds of things offend you? And the answer to most of them, for most of us, is yes, absolutely they offend us. Of course they offend me. And you know why? (laughs) Because they're all about you. The spiritual thermometer test is, are you offended that God's glory is being stolen by people this side of heaven. At least they think so. The great tragedy is that precious few people seem to be offended that God isn't going to get enough glory. Most of the time we are offended not because God isn't getting glory, but because we are not getting glory. Ezekiel thirty-three thirty-one says their heart is set on their gain. Friends, there are two options when it comes to God's glory. Willing obedience now or forced subjection later. And both of those are two sides of the same coin of the coming of God's kingdom. Salvation through judgment now or punishment through judgment later. Because be sure of this, friends, from your reading of Revelation. God cannot share His glory. He cannot. He will not. He refuses to because he deserves it, and he alone. He will ensure, in the process of history, regardless of what we or any evil spiritual forces do, he will ensure that every ounce of praise and glory is going to be his, because nothing else deserves it. For a moment, (laughs) on the cross... It looked like the glory was not going to be had by God. It almost was the greatest sin of all time, at least in Satan's mind. He thought he had had the battle won. But but God had the last laugh and used the greatest tragedy of sin poured out onto Christ to overcome evil. Think about that for just a second because it's a mind-boggling truth that is in the pages of Revelation. God used the greatest tragedy of sin being poured onto Christ to overcome evil. That's a mind-boggling truth of Scripture. And it's one out of which we need to learn to live. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here in Revelation 6. But first, a reminder from verse 1 in the first chapter. Turn to Revelation 1.1 in the first chapter. I want to just give you a little friendly reminder about how to read Revelation uh, from the text of how to read Revelation. We've been, if you'll remember as a congregation, kind of setting that goal of once a week reading through the text of Revelation, about an hour, 15, hour, 30 minutes a week. So I want to remind you of something that I've mentioned a couple times that will help guide your reading of Revelation. Look at verse 1. It says this, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're not going to have this, oh, we do. Well done, A.V. Uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. I want you to focus on that word show. Uh, If you're a circler, circle that word show because it's a key word. It's like a code word at the very beginning of the whole entire book to help you understand how to read the text. That word show is a Greek verb that means to signify. Show means to signify. It means to symbolize, in fact. 
It's related to the word that's used in 12.1 and 3 and uh, 15.1. And if you're a note taker, uh, write down show equals to picture. It's to signify. It's to picture. So what we're reading is a picture of something. And what it's a picture of, and I'm just stealing this from uh, the beginning of my study Bible here, uh, the intro to Revelation, and I have this in your study notes here. It's a picture of the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. That's what Revelation is. It's a picture of the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. So let's look at the picture of the spiritual war as it unfolds in Revelation 6. Turn there to Revelation 6, 1 to 17. We're going to read the whole thing, and we'll go back and uh, make some comment along the way. Revelation 6, 1 through 17. They say this, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked. And behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Jump back to verse 1 which begins the first section, those first eight verses there. This is marked in your study notes there. What we see here in this first section is that those who do not honor God are under the authority of God for destruction. Those who do not honor God are under the authority of God for destruction. Look at verse 1. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb...
one of the seven seals. Remember, this is a continuation of the throne room scene that we just saw in the previous two chapters. It's a continuation of what John saw. So what happens here in chapter 6 flows out of that throne. In fact, many chapters flow out from that throne room scene in chapters 4 and 5, which is why this next creature here is not introduced but assumed. It says, I watched the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, say with a voice like thunder, come. Now press pause for just a second. My version says come. Some of y'all may have a version, a translation that says come and see or come and behold uh, as if the voice is asking John to witness what happens next. As if he's saying, come and see, John, what will happen here next. Uh, but here, here comes the difficulty. Uh, that, that's, that next word, and see or and behold, is probably not in uh, the earlier manuscripts. Which is to say, it's, it's based, that translation is based on bad evidence. Uh, sorry, those of you in KJV and NKJV. Um, the long, long story short is that this is one of those very rare times in Scripture when somebody who was copying the biblical text probably added and see or and behold so that they could avoid the theological difficulty in the text. The theological difficulty in the text. Um, Our later and better manuscripts do not include the words and see. In other words, the command for the four horsemen to come comes from the throne room. Now you see some of the theological difficulty that's in the text. And I'm not just making this up based on come and see not being the right translation. We'll look further on in the text as we go along. And I'll point to you some places where it's clear that those commands and the judgment that's happening here does not come from someone else. It comes from God the Father on his throne. The Lamb himself uh, opened the seal as well. That's another evidence of that in that same verse, verse 1. The Lamb is the one who opened the seal, which means that the authority for the living creature to say what he says, regardless of what he says, comes from the Lamb, which means that the authority of God to bring this judgment is right there in the immediate context for that word come. So we don't have time to answer uh, all of this, uh, but suffice it to say that the command for the writer's to do their bidding comes from the throne room of God. Uh, We know that this is possible. That is, that judgment can come from God even through the evil intentions of humanity or through negative natural phenomena because there are numerous Old Testament passages that speak of God bringing judgment on the people of Israel in addition to the Gentiles, and he uses all means of doing so, sometimes natural phenomena. Uh, these visions of John here in Revelation are described and interpreted in light of many of those Old Testament uh, passages. Uh, one other point to make about this sort of theological difficulty here uh, for the logicians among us. Um, we know that there is mystery here that involves God permitting evil to do his bidding. Because, A, how does an angel named Satan choose evil if in God's presence? Answer that one and you'll be the greatest theologian who has ever lived. Uh, Secondly, 
How did God use the most egregious example of evil the world has ever known, the death of Christ, to bring about the greatest good, our salvation? Again, answer that one and you'll be the smartest person who has uh, never yet lived. How did God use the most egregious example of evil ever known, the death of Christ, to bring about the greatest good, which is our salvation? Are you saying God caused such evil? No, I am not. But I am saying that God can achieve his purposes and evil cannot stop him. And that much is clear in Revelation and throughout the Scriptures. God can achieve His purposes and evil cannot stop Him. Which means that God is sovereign even over evil. And even over Satan's minions. And at the same time is not the author of sin. Uh, For details, uh, ask Him when you get there. I am also looking forward to that particular lecture. Keep reading. Verse 2 says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. That's in the passive, as a way to say that God gave it to him. There's good evidence that God is controlling this whole scene here. The rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Basic gist, and then we're going to pick up the pace here after uh, this verse here. Uh, the basic gist is I think that this is not Christ on this white horse. Some think that this is Christ on this first uh, white horse because it bears resemblance to Christ on a white horse in Revelation 19 later on. Uh, But there are numerous reasons to see that this is not Christ and some sort of anti-Christ. There are actually like eight to ten good reasons, but here are just a few of them. Uh, Number one, the rider has a bow which shoots arrows which are not as deadly nor as accurate as a piercing sword, which is what... Christ has in Revelation 19 later on. Number two, the writer has what we call a Stephanos Stephanos crown, uh, which is won in battle. It's like a prize in battle. And the writer in Revelation 19 has what we call a diadema crown, uh, a royal crown, which can only be had because of one's birth, of one's heritage. So Christ in Revelation 19 has a royal crown. This Christ, uh, this uh, type of Christ, Um, I'll I'll answer that in a second. This not Christ um, has what we call a Stephanos crown. Uh, The language of conquering that's used here in Revelation describes both us as conquerors through Christ and beasts who conquer people. Uh, So the language of conquering here doesn't necessarily have to mean that Jesus has come conquering on that horse. Uh, There are Old Testament parallels that undergird John's interpretation of the four horsemen that demand that these first four horses be evil. Uh, If you want to look that up, nerds, Zechariah 1, 8 to 15, and 6, 1 to 8. Those two uh, visions from Zechariah 1, uh, 1, 8 to 15, and 6, 1 to 8, both show that that is what's going on here in Revelation. Uh, Revelation 12 to 13, those two chapters portray, and this is getting at what we're talking about here, in the rider on the horse. Revelation 12 to 13 portray Satan and his evil agents as deceiving by imitating Christ's appearance. So, uh, you can certainly believe otherwise. You can think that this is Christ and still be a Christian, but it's a difficult case to make. Uh, Long story short, the rider on this first horse is a messianic pretender. A messianic pretender. 
uh, who brings judgment by military force. All four of these horsemen are symbols of war, and the first one is a pretend Messiah. Looks like Jesus, but is not. Which should be no surprise to us. Jesus says in Matthew 24, which is an important passage. Go ahead and read that this week in reading through Revelation. Uh, Matthew 24, 4 to 5 say, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. So, first writer, not Christ, looks like Christ. Verse 3. We've got to pick up the pace here. In verse 3, the nature of the judgment and the warring behavior, the warring behavior seems to get a bit worse with each horse. And then it is summarized in the fourth horse. Here's the second horse, verse 3. It says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted, that's likewise passive as we've already noted. Uh, we'll see some other places in the text. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This is also in the passive voice. He was given a great sword. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. We see here that our history has been unfolding as Jesus said it would. Meaning our history has been unfolding as Jesus said it would in Matthew 24 and as Revelation talks about here. We already know of life with war. The 20th century uh, had before us has been well documented as the bloodiest of all history and has seen more death than all the rest of human history combined. Uh, so remember that this isn't just about physical, earthly war. While that is certainly in play, and we've seen the effects of it, it is also a picture of, as we've noted, the unseen spiritual war in which the church is already engaged. So the enemy isn't nearly as much another country, though it can be used by God to accomplish his judgment. The enemy is always spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's what Revelation is a picture of. Ephesians 6.12 is a good verse for that. Revelation, of course, is a great reminder of that spiritual warfare. I think we think of spiritual warfare as this, this specific sort of context and I'm fighting it at a certain time. Um, <laughs> I think it's going on all the time in everyone and has been since the fall. Uh, and Revelation is a picture of that. Uh, for the nerds among us, if you can't tell, I'm an amillennialist. I'll give you good reasons for that later on. Keep reading, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. Remember, the living creatures were from that throne room. The third living creature said, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. This is just a picture of famine, which is another result of war. Uh, verse 7, the fourth creature is a summary of the devastation that's wrought by uh, this war in the, the first three horses. It says this, verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. By the way, uh, there's a Old Testament covenant kind of form that God uh, sometimes brings judgment 
in the forms of four. And so these four living creatures and four horsemen are in keeping with that Old Testament tradition. It says this, verse 8, I looked and behold a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. All these images are sort of gathered together in this last horse to sort of summarize what's been going on in the previous three here. So as we've noted, as we've sort of gone along in these first eight verses, Jesus talked about these things in Matthew 24. He, he warned his people of them. He said in verses 7 and 9 in Matthew 24, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, which I think started at the fall. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I think Jesus was talking to them then and to us now and to anybody who follows him later on which is to say that suffering and tribulation have been a part of life from the beginning. And I'll uh, make you all believers later on. What we've just seen in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, is relevant to us today uh, because it confirms that the history of humanity is a history of these very things that have been delivered as judgments in these four horses. In a very real sense, there is nothing new in these first eight verses. Nothing new. So let's skip on and let's move on to the next verse and see uh, the second half of this section. Um, As we've already mentioned, Revelation is both now and not yet. It has started but not yet finished. And verses 1 to 8 here are the starting of judgment This isn't a picture of the end yet. We'll see that in this next verse, starting with verse 9. Because the scene shifts from earth to the heavenly altar here in verse 9. We go from war on earth to the altar in heaven, starting in verse 9. And this is that second section in your study notes where it says, those who honor God are avenged by the authority of God. Those who honor God are avenged by the authority of God. Pick up in verse 9. It says this. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Jump back to verse 9. It says, He opened the fifth seal, and under the altar were the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. These are those who are under the altar, meaning that they are covered by God's blood, by Christ's blood. These are the ones talked about in chapters 2 and 3 who are overcomers or conquerors. Uh, These are the martyrs, the witnesses, And I take slain here to mean that these witnesses are not just those who have been killed physically, though it certainly includes that. Uh, There are tons of verses that speak of Christian suffering and persecution in all of its forms, 
as the same as being slain like Christ. That's an important thing to hear for what I'm saying this means here. There are lots of verses that speak of Christian suffering and persecution in all of its forms as being the same as being slain like Christ. We don't have time to get into all of them. But know this. <laughs> when you suffer, when you suffer with Christ, like Christ, in a manner that is in keeping with Christ's character as humble servant, you do so as someone who needn't still make up for sin because you're under the altar. Which means that you are equipped to suffer redemptively. Those who do not follow Christ can't do that. To be under the altar, to be with Christ in suffering, means that you are equipped to suffer redemptively. Which is to say, you can be prepared to be a martyr. Which doesn't just mean, though it might include, being killed for one's faith. Maybe something as relatively silly as being made fun of for following Christ. You are now enabled to suffer redemptively. Uh, the formula for the note takers is uh, this. I'll just mention some verses real quick. Uh, Revelation 5, 6 plus Revelation 6, 9. 5, 6 and 6, 9 plus Matthew 10, 38 to 39. Matthew 10, 38 to 39. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Cool passage that brings a lot of these concepts together. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And Philippians 2, 17. It means you don't have to be killed to be a witness. The rules since the coming of the kingdom of Christ... The rules since the coming of the kingdom in Christ are no longer just about physical suffering. Christ is looking for those who will suffer along with Him for souls to be saved. And by the way, we must come to the point. We must come to the point where faithfulness to God is the only thing that matters. So that we can be under the altar like those people in Revelation. Which is another way of saying this life is not the ultimate reason for your existence. This very life is not the ultimate reason for your existence. Let that one churn for a while. All right, we got a boogie. Verses 10 and following. Uh, they cried out with a loud voice. These are the ones under the altar, the witnesses. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is not the cries of the saints for, by the way, their own vengeance, though that will be a part of what God does. But this is a cry for God's glory to have the last word. I hope that that's the cry of your heart. For God's glory to have the last word. The irony of the title of this second section, Those Who Honor God Are Avenged by His Authority, is that yes, that's us, 
if we follow Christ, but it's also more importantly, God Himself. God wants to honor God. He has to honor Himself, and He will do so. The question is whether you and I will do so under willing obedience or forced subjection. Verse 11, the saints are told to wait for the final consummation. It says this, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These white robes are likely a sign of their justification in Christ. Uh, if you're taking notes, these white robes are a sign of their justification in Christ. And so th- those robes are a sign and a pledge of the glory which will be theirs from God. C.S. Lewis said, It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. Let that one churn in your spirit for a while. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. Verse 12 says this, When, they opened, when he opened the sixth seal... I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. That word there, earthquake, is a Bible trigger for uh, God's going to bring it. Uh, The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. These are all images taken from various Old Testament prophecies and packed together here. The stars of the sky, verse 13, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll. This is a picture of the end. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, seven categories of people there are listed, meaning everyone, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. In other words, kill us and hide us from the face of Him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Strong words for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There will come a day when no one can stand under the wrath of God. Revelation pictures that for us. No king, no general, no rich and powerful, slave nor free, doesn't matter. No one can stand God's grievous and terrible judgment except those under the altar who are wearing a white robe. I'm going to close with a story about a man, a man named Harry Truman, who was not the president, Uh, Some of you may have heard about Harry Truman. He took care of the Spirit Lake Lodge that was about five miles from Mount St. Helens. Harry Truman became a bit of a folk hero for his uh, resistance to the evacuation efforts uh, before the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. He had been warned. Loudspeakers blared and patrol cars and helicopters did their best to evacuate people beforehand. Uh, The geologists knew that something was going to happen and the evidence was there that uh, a volcano would come and explode with a fury that would uh, flatten the surrounding forest. (laughs) Meanwhile, Harry Truman ignored it all. He grinned on national TV and he said, Nobody knows more about this mountain than Harry and it won't dare blow up on him. So on May 18, 1980, at 8.31 a.m., 
the mountain exploded with a force no one expected. I cannot help but wonder if Harry regretted his decision in that small millisecond he had before the concussive waves that were traveling faster than the speed of sound flattened him and everything else around him for 230 square miles. Did he have time to mourn his stubbornness as millions and millions of tons of rock disintegrated and disappeared into a cloud that reached 10 miles into the sky? Did he have second thoughts as a wall of mud and ash 50 feet high buried his cabin, his cats, his freshly mowed lawn? Perhaps he had been vaporized when the mountain erupted with a force that was conservatively 500 to 1,000 times greater than the nuclear bomb that leveled Hiroshima in 1945. The question that faces each of us on earth today is how do you stand in relation to the Lamb who breaks the seals? If you have not pulled if you have not put trust and faith in Christ's blood, Revelation is a warning that you do not stand the remotest chance. That is how seriously God takes His glory. And He doesn't plan to share it with anyone. And He shouldn't. And we should want Him to receive all of it. Every ounce of it.